Sony. Hello, Canada. It's Tony here in Saskatchewan. Today's date is March 30th, 2021. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense. I will be flying solo tonight as Lewis is away and unable to make it for a show tonight. So you will be unfortunately without his fiery factual brand of conservatism and will instead be stuck with my straight from the hip unfiltered conservatism tonight uh we expect to see lewis back here next week or i i guess to hear lewis back here next week so until then you are stuck here with tony in saskatchewan recovering from what i hope to be the final winter storm of the winter of 21 um all of our listeners in Alberta and Manitoba and here in Saskatchewan would all have, quote, enjoyed one last winter storm for the year. And I thank you all for sharing that with us in Saskatchewan. And let us hope that now that spring has officially been here for 10 days, that we can start to enjoy some more spring-like weather starting tomorrow. And hopefully it will We'll stay and we are done with the snow for at least a few more months. Okay, so on the show today, we will be talking about vaccines. We will be talking about the Supreme Court of Canada ruling on carbon tax. And Budget 21. The provinces are rolling some out. How about the feds? We will touch on the CERB, Canada's Economic Emergency Response Benefit. And if we have time, we'll do a little talk about the CFL. All right, let's get right to it here. I would love to have a show where we don't have to talk about vaccines. However, there has not been a show for as long as I can remember where we haven't at least had to touch on vaccines. And unfortunately... This will be one of those shows where we will do more than just touch on vaccines. So we have been told that this week was going to be the week. We were going to get 3 million vaccines in Canada this week. Of course, we were told last week we would get millions of vaccines. We were told the week before we would get millions of vaccines. And... I think the week before that, we were told about the largest portfolio of vaccines in the world and how we would be guaranteed 9.5 million vaccines by the end of March. Does this all sound familiar? Well, none of you will be surprised to hear that that did not happen. Okay, so let's just go through some of the numbers. Now, these are figures as of today, March 30th, 2021 at 4 11 p.m central standard time which is where the time zone we are on here in saskatchewan uh for those of you who observe daylight savings time it would be mountain daylight time 4 11 p.m all right now as of that time there were six million eight hundred sixty four thousand six hundred and nine doses delivered to canada of those six hundred and 6.864 million doses, 79.3% of those doses have been administered. So let's just say for the sake of argument, 80%, which means we've got 
roughly five and a half million doses have actually been put into Canadians' arms. So, big surprise, the federal government is falling short of their promise as to how many Canadians would have a shot by the end of March. Um, just in case you're listening, Mr. Trudeau, and I know that you are, that's tomorrow. So, good luck delivering us another four million vaccines by tomorrow. All right, so what does that mean now for how many of us have been vaccinated? Well, 12.54% of our population has had at least one dose of the vaccine. Now, unfortunately, only 2% of our population is fully vaccinated, meaning they've had a second shot with their having, if they're having the Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca. And we will talk about AstraZeneca shortly. Unfortunately, we have to, because it is very important. But with our 2% of our population that has actually had their their full vaccination, and only 12.5% that has actually had at least one dose, that puts Canada... Now, remember last week I said we had climbed up to number 55 in the world for vaccinating our population? Well, now Canada has dropped to 62nd place in the world for vaccinating our citizens. We're number 62. We're number 62. That thing Lewis said that once back when we were 54 or 57, whatever it was, way too many syllables. Canada should be embarrassed to be 62nd in the world for vaccinating their population. Let's just do a couple quick comparisons, just for the fun of it, because, hey, that's what we do. Israel, 60% plus of their population fully vaccinated. I don't have exact figures for for these next couple of countries I'm going to talk about or up to date because the latest figures I'm going by are their Friday numbers. I don't have their numbers as of today, but as of Friday, Israel, 60% of their population fully vaccinated. The UK, 22%. The United States, 26%. Chile, 31%. Canada, 2%. Wow, that really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Now, President Joe Biden in the United States has said that, yeah, by May, they're going to have every American vaccinated. Well, by May, Canada might be up to 25%, maybe, if we can get some more vaccines. And that's the crux of it all. We keep saying that. We just need to get some more vaccines. But unfortunately... The EU has some export restrictions for vaccines. India now has export restrictions for vaccines. And the United States, because they have yet to approve AstraZeneca for use in the United States, is sending us supposedly 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca this week. So half of what we expect to see our supply being. Now, Moderna, for two weeks in a row, has overpromised and underdelivered. As a matter of fact, they've just flat out shorted us our supply. And they've given us the assurance that they will not short us this week. We will get our vaccines from Moderna this week. 
Well, how about we believe it when we see it? Those should start coming, well, tomorrow, Wednesday. So we shall see. Okay, now note that I had said half of our deliveries this week are expected to be AstraZeneca. Well, now we're starting to run into some problems here. Now, it bears repeating, Lewis had stated this on a show, oh, a, a good month or two ago, and it bears repeating. In fact, it probably bears repeating every show, and I know Lewis has said it a couple of times, but any vaccine that has been approved for use in Canada has only been approved for emergency use only. Now, it's very important that we all recognize that because emergency use only essentially means that the drug companies take absolutely no responsibility for any adverse effect, effects that occur due to consumption of said vaccine. Now, why is that important right now? Well, let's talk about our good friends at AstraZeneca, shall we? Now, you'll remember that when we first started getting the vaccine in, um, we'd reported here on Canadian Common Sense that the UK was a little hesitant about administering the vaccine to populations over 65 years of age because they just did not have a lot of trials in that age cohort. And then, in fact, there were other countries in Europe who also had said, you know what, we are just not going to give the AstraZeneca vaccine to populations over the age of 65. And in Canada, of course, because we are so short on vaccines, we are desperate to start jabbing people in the arm, Health Canada and our good, reliable, honest friend Teresa Tam said, oh yeah, that the AstraZeneca will be fine for populations over age 65 in Canada. Nowhere else, but... Effectively, we became the country that said, yes, we will allow seniors to be our guinea pigs because that eh, doesn't matter. There's a government fund set up with taxpayer money for any kind of settlements if something goes wrong. Well, then as I reported last week on this show, there was the issue of, of blood clots. Now, remember I had, I won't say called out our left-wing friends, but I had said that, why are our left-wing friends so silent when there's an issue of blood clots? Because, as, I, as our friends on the left always say, well, even one case is too many. Or well, if, if you have one case, you need to shut it all down. Well, 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 well. Thank you to our left-wing friends, which is pretty much anybody in government in this country. AstraZeneca has been showing some, well, adverse effects in the female population in the under 55 cohort. That's a huge swath of Canadian society is women under 55. Now, it it didn't say that men under 55 were not being adversely reacting, were not adversely reacting to the AstraZeneca vaccine it just said that there were more cases of women suffering adverse reactions to AstraZeneca. So now, uh, there are a lot of provinces are hesitant 
to administer the AstraZeneca vaccine to anybody under the age of 55. There was some hesitancy for people over the age of 65 to accept the AstraZeneca vaccine. So that begs the question, who wants the AstraZeneca shot anyway? Now, Justin Trudeau very flippantly has echoed Theresa Tam's line and also some other experts in saying that the best vaccine you can get is the first is the first one offered to you. Well, Mr. Trudeau admittedly has not yet got a vaccine. As he said in his year-end interview with Evan Solomon at the end of 2020, when it's time for healthy 40-year-olds, I will line up for the shot. Well, Mr. Trudeau, you're actually 49, so really you're closer to being a 50-year-old, but you got to be cool, hip, young, and woke, right? So uh, anyway, it would appear to me that the best vaccine is not necessarily the first shot you're offered if that shot happens to be AstraZeneca. And, oh yeah, it's a million and a half AstraZeneca shots coming to us from the United States this week. So for those of you who are, you know, from the age of 55 to 64, I guess line up for the shot. And if you are below 55 or over 65, maybe you want to think twice. I certainly know that I would. Okay, so we'll continue on the vaccine front very, very briefly here. Now, I mentioned Teresa Tam a moment ago. She is almost as good a source for entertainment for this show as Justin Trudeau. Now, Teresa Tam, who, does she really have any credibility anymore? I mean, she lost all credibility with me months ago. Um, I won't say quite a year ago. I tried to give her the benefit of the doubt for about the first month of, or so of the pandemic, and she blew it for me on several occasions. So those of us who are still listening to Teresa Tam and what she has to say, she is now saying, you know, we can, Canadians must continue to wear masks inside, outside, close to people, not close to people, wear your masks and continue hand-washing. And if we don't take stricter measures than we currently are, we could see 13,000 cases of COVID a day now that we are in the in this third wave. And honestly, Dr. Tam has just turned into a fear merchant. And I'm quite tired of her. In fact, I'm quite tired of anybody who markets in fear. And that was actually what lost me on the whole pandemic a year ago when my premier, Scott Moe, said there was going to be 3,075 COVID deaths by the end of May 2020. Well, that modeling was way off because it's the end of March 2021 and Saskatchewan is just over 400 COVID deaths. One is too many, Tony. Yes, I know. One is too many. So we probably should still have society completely locked down. Everybody should work from home. Even those people who, you know, like deliver groceries for a living. You also should work from home and have those groceries just deliver themselves to 
people. So, I mean, it's, it's insanity. But, unfortunately, falling right in line with the insanity are our power-hungry politicians who are just loving having all this power to, con- to keep Canadians under state of emergency. Quebec is st- Still got curfews that, you know, oh, we can bump the curfew to 9.30 at night instead of 8 o'clock because we are doing you such a favor, Quebec. Doug Ford in Ontario suggesting that, well, more lockdowns will be coming if we can't get this under control. Well, numbers of COVID deaths are actually going down. So that tells me that what we're doing is working because right now what we're doing is we are getting into the long-term care homes and vaccinating our seniors, which is what Lewis and I said a year ago we should be doing. And now that finally that is what we are doing, we are seeing numbers going down. But of course, the fear merchants that I was referring to earlier are more than happy to tell us that, well, the case numbers are rising and the demographic those numbers are rising in is our younger population, our 20 to 39, and we need to protect them. Okay, I have said this many times on this show. Sure, we need to take care of our 20 to 39-year-old population, but they are the youngest, the healthiest demographics, and guess what? Yes, they're getting sick, they're catching COVID, and they're not dying. And yes, some of them end up in ICU, but they are not dying. They are building up the antibodies that they need naturally to fight this disease, even with the quote-unquote variants, and they they are getting better. And that is exactly what Lewis and I talked about over a year ago now when the pandemic was first declared and our politicians ran around like their collective hair was on fire, shutting down our, our society. So what we said could happen has actually now happened. Now that the younger population is catching this virus, guess what? They are fighting it off. Are some of them going to going to pass away from the disease? Probably, yes. Is that tragic? Absolutely. What did my left leftist friends what are, what are my leftist friends yelling at their their radio right now? Even one death is too many. Yes. True, and I won't even diminish that. Yes, one is too many, but it is this younger demographic that is building our herd immunity, and it is it is this younger demographic that's going to get us out of this. So you know what? Let them go to work. Let them catch it. The vast majority of them who do catch COVID won't even know they have it, and they will build up the antibodies and get over it. Yes, I know, my hear my I hear the leftist friends already. They'll catch it and give it to grandma. Well, luckily grandma is getting her covid shots as we speak. So we probably can put that one to rest. All right. One last thing on the on the the vaccine front and it is not even vaccine so much as just the covid mutations, oops, variants is I'm very disappointed that my good friend Lewis's province of British Columbia has decided it's time for, and I absolutely loathe this term, time for a circuit breaker. Now, I don't know what genius 
thought the term circuit breaker to describe a lockdown, but British Columbia is going into a temporary lockdown. Well, we were in temporary lockdowns for, well, I guess the better part of a year. We've Different provinces and different regions and different cities have gone in and out of lockdowns. So I guess that's what they call a circuit breaker, temporary lockdown. But I guess because I'm the son of a tradesman and grew up around farmers and handymen all my life, that to me, a circuit breaker is where you just sort of cut power to an electrical circuit. So that's all the power. Now, I guess, which circuit do you want to break? Well, in the case of British Columbia, it's the whole province, allegedly, because now the whole province has got is bringing in restrictions on restaurants. I had read that in-room dining is now going to be circuit broken, banned. And it's unfortunate because British Columbia, you guys were the sane ones. You guys were the ones that I looked up to and said, at least British Columbia is doing this right, or at least mostly right because you haven't shut your economy down. Well, until now, that is. And yes, we had discussed on this show months ago that the city of Vancouver had brought in different restrictions on traveling in and out, and the Brute Squad were checking ID for people in vehicles to make certain they were all part of the same household and they had different restrictions that way but by and large they still allowed their economy to keep going until now now they've decided that they need to join the rest of the backwards brain dead crowd and shut the whole thing down well if they haven't figured out by looking at what's happened across the country that this was a mistake then I guess you deserve what you've done to yourself. But I still want to say that British Columbia was the the smart one. That was the actual voice of reason, the, you know, the adult in the room. But perhaps I was wrong. All right. Now, I spent way too much time talking about COVID and vaccines, but unfortunately, Canada, that is stuff we need to talk about because it is very front and center. What else is front and center? Unfortunately, on Thursday of last week, the Supreme Court of Canada finally came down with its ruling on the carbon tax fight. Now, a brief history. Most people listening to this show know the the background behind the carbon tax fight. So when Justin Trudeau announced uh, in 2017 that the federal government was bringing in a carbon tax, by the way, two days from now on April 1st, the carbon tax goes up another $10. Who increases taxes in a, in a recession, by the way? Oh, Justin Trudeau, because he did it to us last year, too. Well, so the carbon tax is going up on April 1st, another $10 a ton to $40 a ton, just to make Canada that much less competitive on the world stage. So back in 2017, then Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall was the first to stand up and say, No, Saskatchewan will not implement and impose a carbon tax upon their citizens. Then slowly other provinces began to join in the fight. And when Justin Trudeau 
essentially beg Bradwall to to even just rename a current existing tax in Saskatchewan a carbon tax. Bradwall said no. And then Alberta joined on Saskatchewan's side. Manitoba joined Saskatchewan's side. New Brunswick, Ontario all joined in to support Saskatchewan in their bid not to have a carbon tax. And Saskatchewan decided that they uh, were going to take it to court. And Alberta and Ontario as well. Uh, Manitoba and New Brunswick decided to cave in and implement their own form of carbon tax. But Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Ontario all took it to their own provincial Supreme Courts. Then, of course, the reference got passed on to the Supreme Court of Canada to rule whether or not it was actually constitutional for the federal government to impose a tax upon provinces. Well, the Supreme Court finally came down on Thursday, and they they ruled that, well, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. I'm no constitutional scholar, so unfortunately I'm going to have to roll my eyes, bite my tongue, and just say that, well, it is what it is. The Supreme Court said, well, yes. And they used the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause in order to say that, yes, it is constitutional, but they didn't use the words tax. And, well, a lot of things bothered me about this decision, but the one of the, one of them things that was Justice Wagner who read the, read the decision out, who, by the way, is our current acting head of state because we have no governor general yet, even though we were told months ago that it would only take weeks to replace Julie Payette, as a side note, at any rate, Robert, Mr. Richard Wagner, who is our Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, and as I say, our interim Governor General, said that climate change is an existential threat to all of Canada and car- carbon doesn't recognize provincial boundaries. Therefore, Ottawa can impose a, quote, regulatory pricing mechanism nationally on carbon emissions. Now, I hate that they use the word regulatory because it's not a regulation. It's a goddamn tax. And Mr. Trudeau was never afraid to call it a tax. None of his cabinet were ever afraid to call it a tax because that's what it is. It is a tax. And... Our, what bugs me about Justice Wagner being the one who reads the majority opinion on this, and it was a six to three majority, by the way, so by no means was it a unanimous decision. Three dissenting judges, one from the Atlantic, one from the West, and one from Quebec dissented. And it bothered me that Justice Wagner is the one who reads the majority decision because it compromises him because acting as governor general, he is the one who will have to give assent to any further quote regulations, AKA taxes on carbon, which to me compromises him as either role as governor general or as the chief justice of the Supreme court. Now, 
Another thing that bothers me with the whole carbon tax idea in the first place is that for some reason the Trudeau government considers carbon dioxide, CO2, to be, quote, pollution. And pollution shouldn't be free. Uh, you've probably heard everybody talk about that. And Jonathan Wilkinson, possibly one of the most arrogant, smug ministers in that liberal government. And that is saying a lot because there is a ton of arrogance in that cabinet. But Jonathan Wilkinson says, and I quote, more aggressive climate change measures are coming, end quote. Well, I can only imagine that means even more taxes because that's really, Mr. Wilkinson actually said in an interview with Evan Solomon that, oh, economists have, have shown you, have proven that taxing is the most effective way to in, incite and in, incent change in Canadians, change in behaviors. So tells me that more taxes are coming. But here's one of the things that bothers me about carbon dioxide emissions, because we all know, you and I, regular people, that carbon dioxide is plant food. Plants take in carbon dioxide, they emit oxygen. It's called photosynthesis. And yes, the, the process is reversed at night. We all know this. And we, what most of us know is that all across Canada's north, the north of every province, save possibly Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island, and all three territories all, all have one thing in common, the boreal forest. The boreal forest has, as a rough estimate, about 39 billion trees. And those trees actually absorb 11 times the carbon dioxide emissions emitted by Canada. 11 times. Now, I don't give much credit to this past prime minister very often, but in 1998, Jean Chrétien actually demanded that Canada be given special consideration in the Kyoto Protocol meetings for Canada's quote-unquote carbon sink, that being the boreal forest. Even Jean Chrétien recognized that our boreal forest is quite a valuable carbon absorber. Justin Trudeau, completely clueless. And even with the extra 2 billion trees that they, the government has promised to plant, they planted zero, by the way, we would still be soaking in way, way, way more carbon than we emit. Now, I'm happy to say that we shouldn't pollute the environment, no question. And I'm happy to to cut back on actual harmful pollution, which we've been doing all on our own through innovative technology. But carbon dioxide is not the enemy here. However, enjoy your carbon tax, Canada. Now, the final word I want to talk, say on this is that Again, I'm no constitutional expert, but I have read sections 91 and 92 of Canada's Constitution enough to understand that this ruling from the Supreme Court is really going to muddy the waters between jurisdictions that are federal and jurisdictions that are provincial as far as responsibilities for each level of government. And 
in my humble opinion, I'm not suggesting any kind of collusion. I'm not suggesting any kind of coercion. But what I am going to say is that, in my opinion, Justin Trudeau and his government must be salivating at this decision because, as Jason Kenney very, very aptly pointed out immediately after the decision was made and announced, that this really sets the table for the federal government to set minimum standards and intrude upon other national programs that are administered provincially. I'm saying healthcare because Justin Trudeau already has tampered with the Canada Health Act in order to effectively outlaw private MRI clinics. And we had that fight right here in Saskatchewan where we actually had private MRI clinics that were still working in the public system. And Mr. Trudeau said that, nope, they can't be private. They have to be, have to be public. And what a surprise. Now the waiting list for MRIs in Saskatchewan has shot right back up again. And that's a fight that we will continue to have. But Mr. Kenny was absolutely right in pointing out that this does open the door for Ottawa to start imposing, quote, minimum standards on essentially whatever they want. And they can go back to this very decision and say, this is our precedent for doing so. One caller to a Saskatoon radio show had very aptly put it when he had said, with this decision, the Supreme Court has changed the Federation. And that is exactly what they've done for the reasons that Mr. Kenny outlined and I just summarized. And that worries the hell out of me that Ottawa is going to do everything they can to bully the provinces and impose their, quote, minimum standards. And on that note, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, reacted by saying that, well, we accept the decision and we now will put in place our own carbon tax on the New Brunswick model and please can we have some of that that clean environmental money from the government that they were withholding before. So I guess Scott Moe has kind of given up. Now, the New Brunswick model was they were rebating money back to their citizens right at the gas pump by lowering the, the tax on gasoline to offset the carbon tax. Well, the federal government has already said, and uh, Jonathan Wilkinson in that same interview with Evan Solomon has said that, well, New Brunswick will, is probably no longer in compliance with, with the standards we have set out, so they will have to rework their model. So he's already telegraphing to me that Saskatchewan will get turned down when they suggest they are going to follow the New Brunswick model. So uh, we're already seeing the writing on the wall that is going to be an Ottawa knows best approach and you will tax your citizens. And I agree with Aaron O'Toole here. You will tax the poorest Canadians who can least afford to pay that tax. And as much as Justin Trudeau says, you can, citizens will get back more money than they paid in. I didn't. Did you? And you know he's full of it. So I'm really upset about this, Canada. But 
I don't really know what else we can do to fight this ridiculousness other than just simply not to pay it. Now, to his credit, Scott Moe, Premier of Saskatchewan, did at least say that they were going to bring the Crown Corporation in charge of electricity and the one in charge of natural gas under provincial regulation and then have more control over, well, whatever kind of carbon taxation you want to call it. So that's a good step. Honestly, uh, there are different avenues I would like to take. And, you know, provincial autonomy has always been an important subject to me. So I think that the time for provinces to start taking control of their own taxation and say, we will collect the taxes, not have Ottawa collect taxes on our behalf. And Quebec already does this. Quebec already has their own tax collection agency. And it's time for provinces to do the same and just say, you know what? We're not giving you these taxes until we get some actual reform and some representation in the government, which we don't have right now. Okay, I do want to get, uh, we've got a few more minutes here. I do want to talk a little bit about budgets. I think that's probably all we'll get to today. So uh, leave a couple topics on the table, which uh, we'll get to it another day. We'll have one of those shows one of these days where we cover those topics we didn't have time for in other shows. But it's budget time across Canada. And, of course, I'll remind you yet one more time that the federal government has not presented a budget to Canadians in over two years, but they sure have been happy to spend. And on that note, Justin Trudeau and his government gave themselves permission to increase Canada's debt ceiling, the amount of money that the government is allowed to, I guess, be indebted, up to $1.8 trillion dollars now we are already in debt 1.2 trillion dollars so hey why not increase our debt limit by a full 50 percent over what it is now to 1.8 trillion dollars now i'm just gonna throw this out there the way we watch this this government spend money and throw money around and burn money and give money to well-connected liberal insiders. I'm thinking it's only going to take maybe two more years to reach that debt ceiling because that's only another $600 billion. Well, we burned through more than that just in this last year alone. And maybe it was about that much, but regardless, and easily within a couple of years, this government will burn through that that money. They're already talking about $100 billion in stimulus money that they don't really know what to do with, but they're going to throw that money around somewhere. They just won't tell us where because they don't even know. All right, so I can't wait for the federal budget, which is coming on April 19th, by the way. And yes, we will be covering that on this show. But the province of Ontario has delivered a budget. And here's a fun fact of the province of Ontario. Since the federal government's last budget on March 19th of 2019, the government of Ontario, you know, since they have released their budgets at the end of March, have actually released three budgets now 
end of March 2019, 2020, and 2021, and the federal government has yet to release one. Some food for thought. Way to go, Ontario. Unfortunately, way not to go, Ontario. Ontario is going to is forecasting a $33 billion deficit for the upcoming year because this is their recovery budget. Now, they've increased spending on a lot of different social services and their plan is to balance the budget in 10 years. Now, I've heard different pundits say that a lot of cynical politicians are right now taking advantage of Canada Canadians' general, I guess, ho-hum attitude toward deficits right now. Canadians really aren't all that upset about governments going into debt right now because I think they bought the line that deficit financing is cheap right now because interest rates are low. Lewis and I have been sounding the alarm that interest rates are on their way up, and they are. But Ontario, 10 years to balance their budget. Now, remember, we told you on this show, and it's quite common knowledge, that Ontario is the largest sub-sovereign indebted jurisdiction in Canada. In other words, Ontario has the largest debt of any state or province or division of a country in the world. Not I might have said Canada. In the world. And that is, by and large, Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne's fault. Doug Ford inherited that mess. So I do not blame Doug Ford for the huge debt that Ontario is in. But I do have to hold him to account for a $33 billion deficit for next year. That's going to hurt. Now... Quebec, right next door, is forecasting a $12.3 billion deficit for next year, and they have promised to balance that budget in seven years. Now, here's a fun fact with Quebec. They actually have balanced budget legislation in Quebec, which really doesn't have any teeth, obviously. And Their balanced budget legislation states that if the government does run a deficit budget, that they have to get the budget back on track within five years. So the government now has used COVID to say to give themselves an extra two years. So they're going to eliminate this $12.3 billion deficit in seven years. Now, Saskatchewan is going to be releasing their budget next week, April 6th. And we'll certainly have some reactions on that one here. And Already we know there's going to be a deficit because they were already in deficit before they started. And finance minister in Saskatchewan said in an interview months ago that, quote, we are going to have to move the goalposts on returning to balance in regards to the budget. Now, in the election campaign last fall in October in Saskatchewan, the government promised they would balance the budget by 2024. Knowing we were in the middle of the pandemic, so they knew what we were into, but but got elected on a promise that they would balance the budget in four years. Now they're saying, well, we really don't know when we might balance the budget. Canadians have to, at some point in time, say, enough is enough. Already, with 
the the massive, enormous debt the federal government has run up, and all of the debts provincial governments have run up, this country is in the hole for $2 trillion. Now, I don't know what $2 trillion looks like. I understand that most Canadians don't know what $2 trillion looks like. So to put it into perspective, it's like each and every Canadian citizen owes an extra $250,000 on top of their mortgage. And and even that's not accurate because it's every single man, woman, and child in Canada that is $250,000 in the hole. Now, that's a number I can get my head around because where I live, that's actually a house, a starter home, is $250,000. So for my family of four, we're a million dollars in the hole before we even go to work in the morning. Let that one sink in, Canada. I don't know what $2 trillion looks like, but a million dollars for my family of four, I can kind of get my head around. And I sincerely hope you can get your head around this too. Now, as we often do, I'm leaving you on a sour note there, Canada, but somebody has got to hold our governments to account and quite obviously it's not our opposition federally we just have an opposition who is trying to tell canadians well i'm we're left wing just not as left wing as justin and we believe in in climate change it's real climate change is real we're gonna have a plan and yes we are left wing look 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 we're we're moving to the center we're moving to the center Provincially, we have opposition to criticize government spending by saying, you need to spend more. You need to lock people down now and, and, and until there's zero COVID cases. So there's not a lot of hope right now for our politicians to save us, Canada. So we're going to have to save ourselves somehow. On that note, thank you for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week. It's Tony here in Saskatchewan. And hopefully next week we will have Lewis back with us from British Columbia. Until then, have a great week and good night. and Tony.